Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Next time you're in a church context, bring up the word healing and see what kind of reactions you get. Chances are they will vary widely. Dr. Elizabeth Rain Kincaid of Neshota House speaks here with Father Sean Martin. Father Sean is president of Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis. He has a PhD in biblical theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. And Father Sean is also priest in residence at Christ the King Catholic Church in Dallas, Texas, when he's not at Aquinas Institute, of course. No one can be in two places at once, not even Catholic theologians. Now, much of his work focuses on the letters of St. Paul and the New Testament. And most recently, he's interested in the biblical precedent for and phenomenon of healing. So if he were to ask, what do the scriptures bring to bear on the question of healing, your first instinct, like Dr. Kincaid admits was her first instinct, would be that he would start with the New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles, or the miracles of Jesus. But Father Sean says he actually wants to go back to the Old Testament, because we can only understand what God does in Christ and in the church by going first to what God has already been doing among his people, Israel. The God of Israel, after all, was known as a God of wonder-working. How does the Old Testament's record of healing lay the foundation for the ministry of Jesus and for the vocation of the church leading up to today? And by the way, how does it relate to the vocation of healthcare workers in a modern healthcare system? Relevant questions. Let's listen in. So, Father Sean, in your current research, you're focusing on the topic of healing in Scripture. What got you interested in this topic? Why are you pursuing this? 
Well, part of it was this was an article commissioned by Charlie Bouchard, who was at that time the vice president for ethics uh, and theology at uh, Catholic Health Association in St. Louis. He's moved on to some other functions within uh, the Catholic Health Association, but he was a longtime president of Aquinas Institute of Theology, so one of my predecessors there. And he has enormous contacts all over the theological community and really worldwide, but I think I'm the only biblical scholar that he knows. And, you know, particularly in Catholic theology, since the Second Vatican Council, the Council Fathers urged Catholic theologians to return to the study of the sacred page, you know, which is sort of Romans speak for uh, the scriptures, which, you know, I think anybody who's familiar at all with the way in which Catholic theology you know, traditionally went about its business, there was very little attention paid to the scriptures. It was mostly, especially around ethical issues, um, you know, it was very conceptual. It was very based on natural law and those kinds of uh, concerns. Since the council, of course, so since 1965 and, and probably really more since 75, you know, we've we've really kind of um, outlined a methodology which says, well, we might you know, draw some conclusions from a natural law perspective, we're still going to take under consideration what the scriptures have to say. So as, as I say, the only biblical scholar that, that Charlie could at least call upon, he may know a few more than me, but um, I was commissioned to write this article, which was fascinating for me uh, because I'm a longtime teacher. Uh, this year marks 39 years in the classroom. And, you know, when I tend to think about the body of sacred literature that's found in Torah or in prophets or in writings or the Gospels or the letters of Paul or whatever else, I tend to uh, extrapolate, so to speak, you know, teachings from them. Um, I'm interested in the, uh, you know, the theological formation of people who are preparing themselves to minister in the name of the gospel, in the name of the Lord. But in this case, I had to consider this kind of question of healing and what the scriptures can bring to bear on the question of healing. And, and for me, it was just, it was kind of a new thing, uh, but it was fascinating. And I will eventually, when I get the time, turn that modest little article into something a little more lengthy. Well, one of the things that I really have enjoyed about our conversation about your work on healing is that um, when I think about healing, the first place I go in, in scripture, the first place I go is to think about Jesus's miracles. But your, part of your point is that in your research is that we actually have to start looking at healing in the Old Testament. Which Absolutely. Is, and so I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on what's going on in the Old Testament. Why do we have to understand healing in the Old Testament to get to this understanding and engagement with Jesus's miracles? Yeah. And I would say uh, that would be true no matter what we were looking at, if we're trying to understand Jesus, that we want to start with the Torah and the prophets and the writings because Jesus was steeped in understanding of the Torah and the prophets and the writings. So, you know, it, it, it would be like trying to understand, uh, I don't know, the American uh, constitution without knowing Anglo-Saxon common law. You know, I mean, it's just, it's the necessary background. So I think in this particular case, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about some of those narratives about the prophets that dealt with healing. Um, and I would say maybe by way of preface, that instead of language around miracle, 
I prefer to think in terms of thaumaturgy, which is one of those 25 cent words that, you know, theologians love to use. But, you know, literally it means wonder working. And I think the way in which we understand thaumaturgy today, it is a it is any event which reveals the power and the presence of God. Whereas a miracle, you know, at least from a 21st century perspective, can oftentimes be an event for which we have no rational explanation. So that today's routine technologies are yesterday's miracles. And I actually, I was thinking about this in preparation for this, this conversation, this podcast. You know, think about diagnostic procedures that are at our disposal x-rays or CAT scans or MRIs or whatever else, you know, a hundred years ago, it would have been unthinkable that a physician would be able to peer inside the human body and, you know, make diagnostic uh, predictions based on what he sees, whether it's x-rays or CAT scans or MRIs or, you know, whatever other technologies we've got uh, at our disposal. So I think, as I say, what would have been yesterday's technology, or excuse me, yesterday's miracle is today's technology. Nevertheless, I think that when, you know, when you, when you go into the hospital and you're sick and you um, experience, you know, the care and the concern of healthcare providers, uh, docs and nurses and nurse practitioners and x-ray technicians and, you know, whoever else you encounter, that that very event of, of seeking healing can reveal the power and the presence of God. So when I think about these stories, uh, I think particularly of Elijah and Elisha, and I've got the book open here in front of me, uh, First, First Kings uh, chapter 17, involving the uh, involving Elijah and the uh, widow of Zarephath, right? She saves him first, you know? I mean, he's starving and he's exiled and, you know, all of that. And he in turn saves her, making sure there's enough jar of, you know, flour and oil and all that. But I mean, there's a kind of a mutual compassion that the two of them extend toward one another. And then the child that she has becomes ill to the point of death, right? And when you look at that story, Elijah turns to God first in the language of lament, right? So he says, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I'm staying by killing her son? This is classic uh, Israelite lament, you know, where you've got this sort of brutal honesty with God. Think about the opening line of Psalm 23, you know, or 22, depending on how you number these things. But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And while we tend to identify that with sort of the piety around, um, you know, Good Friday, um, the truth is it's a, it's a pretty, you know, naked complaint uh, against the Deus absconditus, you know, the, the God who is somehow hidden. And the psalmist goes on to say, you know, I've been crying out all day and you don't answer and all night and there's silence and, you know, come on, um, answer me. And, and you have that same kind of brutal honesty here in Elijah's lament before the Lord. And then, of course, typical for laments, there's also petition. So he says, the Lord, my God, let this child's life come upon him again. And the narrator says, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came back to him and so forth and so on. But what you have in that episode then is 
um, a kind of honesty with God on the one hand, but a kind of humble request of God on the other hand, which speaks of really what compassion looks like. You know, I mean, when I think about, I was hospitalized about a little over a year ago, but um, when I think about the way in which my healthcare providers dealt with me as I was, you know, sort of dealing with back pain and so forth, they were simultaneously kind, but honest, you know, um, stern, but um, compassionate. Uh, and, you know, I, th I think that's kind of what we see here as a sort of a model with Elijah. Now, one of the other pieces that, that I think is important as we consider these stories is that the prophet really stands in this kind of intermediary position between uh, the human race on the one hand or the human community on the one hand and God on the other. And so the prophet, and it doesn't make any difference whether you're talking about Elijah, Elisha, Amos, Isaiah, I mean, whoever, they stand in this kind of intermediary and even intercessory position. So they represent the human community to God. That's the sort of the lament part. And they also represent God to the human community. And I think similar um, kind of case might be made today for anybody who's about the business of healing that they stand in kind of an intermediary position. Now, you know, again, when you're a patient, you go to the hospital, you go to your doctor's office or whatever else, you know, the doctor doesn't necessarily turn to the Lord. He turns to, or she turns to, you know, this body of knowledge and wisdom that he or she has accumulated over the course of, you know, a clinical practice and brings to bear that wisdom on, you know, whatever condition that, you know, I as the patient am suffering from. And, you know, you you go into the office feeling bad and, you know, you leave, you might still be objectively feeling bad, but hope, hope has been awakened because, you know, with the application of analgesics or antibiotics or, you know, antihistamines or, you know, whatever it is, all those A medicines that we take, that eventually you're going to get better, you know, and that we then encounter in the in both the wisdom of the healthcare provider, but also the compassion that the healthcare provider gives us, we encounter a kind of an analogy for God's own wisdom, God's own compassion. You know? Yeah, that's, I mean, I've, I've never thought about it that way before, and I really appreciate. That's because you're healthy. <laughs> Great point. Um, well, I want to actually circle back to that, but I want to go on. Let's go on to the New Testament then. Yeah. What do, I mean, I feel I, I, you know, laying this foundation for understanding healing in the Old Testament and the role of the prophets. I and mean, one of the things we always talk about is that Jesus is both prophet, priest, and king. Right. And that, as you said, we can't understand Jesus without understanding the Old Testament. So looking at the narratives of healing in Jesus's ministry, what would you say is added or clarified or uh, kind of additional insights that we see from these instances? Yeah. And again, when I think about uh, the thaumaturgy of Jesus, again, whether it's uh, acts of healing, feeding in the wilderness, um, you know, raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, the raising of the widow or the son of the widow of Nain. I mean, I think all of those I would understand again as thaumaturgy revealing the power and the presence of God. Of course, 
the central claim of the New Testament is that the power and the presence of God is revealed in the person of Jesus. But I think that, you know, similarly, I mean, just in terms of our own experience, the acts in which we engage our actions are also revelations of our own being, our person. You know, I act in a certain way because I am a certain way. I think, you know, being precedes doing, if you want to put it that in that kind of philosophical way. But I think that with Jesus then, um, yeah, he is the power and the presence of God. He is the compassion of God. He is the son of God. That's the language that, you know, especially Paul of Tarsus likes to, to use in referring to Jesus. But um, when we look at his actions then, they also reveal that power, that presence, that compassion that is God. So, you know, I think, for instance, of the kind of double effect, if you want to use that language, uh, that we oftentimes associate with the um, the thaumaturgy of Jesus, let's say the raising of the son of the widow of Naim. You know, um, she's a widow, so she has no husband. He is her only son. And in that world, of course, you know, the absent some important man in a woman's life, her father, her husband, her son, she becomes you know, particularly vulnerable. I mean, she really becomes, um, you know, prey, if you will, to other people, especially unscrupulous types. So that when Jesus restores the life of the the son, and of course, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how old this boy is, but uh, when he restores the life to his son, he is in effect restoring life and well-being to the mother as well, because she has her son back. And she has this, um, you know, she has this person who's going to, to, protector, you know. Now, I, that sort of sounds old-fashioned in the 21st century because I don't think we think today that widows are necessarily vulnerable. In our culture, at least. In our culture, at least. But we certainly do know, yeah, in other cultures that um, widows are vulnerable. I Just about this time last year, I was in Vietnam. And at one point, I am visiting the Dominican Sisters of Tam Hiep, which is a in a kind of a suburb of Saigon. And one of their former prioresses, uh, after she left office, they hold office for, you know, six or seven years. And then they kind of go back into the ranks and she was looking for something to do. So she founded this center for, initially it was widows. Because in that culture, you know, um, once somebody had lost, and because of the war, you know, there were a lot of widows, lost their husbands, lost their sons uh, to violence. They really became... Um, desperate. And so she founded this center, um, which among other things, she was digging ponds to plant or to, you know, harvest uh, tilapia. And she put in uh, orchards to, you know, harvest lychee fruit and things like that. She told me last year that out of the various ponds that she herself had dug, that they were, uh, they harvested 12 tons of tilapia, (laughs) which, you know, I mean, whether you like tilapia or not, but it is nutritious. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a reliable source of protein. And, you know, when I visited this place, I think there were 300 women, not all widows. Some are developmentally disabled, um, you know, Down syndrome and that kind of things. But in that culture, they had been, you know, dismissed and um, thought of as, uh, you know, disposable. And this woman, you know, with all of the compassion of God, 
decided that they were not disposable, they should not be dismissed, and she found a way to see that their dignity as human beings was uh, honored. And they're not, they were not all Catholic, you know, a lot of them were Buddhist or animist or Cao Dai or, you know, and Vietnam is pretty religiously diverse. Uh, and she ministered them all without exception, which again, you know, reminds me of some of those stories about Jesus's own thaumaturgy, where it's, you know, Romans come and ask them to, you know, heal the servant or the slave or, you know, whoever it is, and Jesus exceeds, you know, and, and even does it at a distance, you know, but it's about the manifestation of compassion. It's about um, seeing the power and the presence of the Lord precisely as compassion. Now, one of the things that I've been doing, you know, um, is doing a lot of work, both consultation and through Aquinas Institute, where I've been president for the last uh, five years, um, you know, is, is working with Catholic healthcare. And one of the things that we will say to people who are, you know, deeply enmeshed in Catholic healthcare is that whether you know it or not, whether you're even conscious of it or not, whether you're even explicitly adverting to it or not, to the extent that you are compassionate, you manifest the power and the presence of God, you know, and it's in that compassion that patients and, you know, families and loved ones and so forth um, encounter God. People aren't getting out much these days, but they are listening to podcasts. So if you're in publishing, nonprofit ministry, church technology, vestments, or anything in between, we would love to advertise for you right here on our weekly podcast. We have hundreds of listeners a week. Our audience is cross-generational and it is growing. Just email Andrew Russell at arussell at livingchurch.org. That's A-R-U-S-S-E-L-L at livingchurch.org and he'll get you started. I really appreciate this perspective, Father. I think a lot of times, at least in certain sectors of the Protestant world, when we talk about healing, where we tend to camp out on is sort of the question of the continuing of the charismatic gift, you know, right. do these or these hard questions about why doesn't my loved one get healed. Um, but what I love about the way you're presenting this is that you're really expanding our horizon of what healing means, that we have to he see healing in a much broader context um, and God's power in a much broader context coming through in this idea of compassion, um, whether it's people in Catholic healthcare, whether it is the Dominican sisters in Vietnam and that, healing is wonder working can look a lot differently than perhaps our first thought of why doesn't this person get well or is this person going to be healed by some sort of zap divine zap and i think there you know the mistake that we oftentimes make and i don't i would say this i don't think that's confined to the protestant world i really don't uh, I see plenty of evidence for this within Roman Catholicism, and I'm a lifelong Roman Catholic, and I've been a Roman Catholic priest for 39 years and all of that. So I think I kind of know my, you know, my corner, so to speak, of the church uh, fairly well. A lot of Catholics ha are, uh, are kind of consumed by the same kinds of concerns that you talk about. And my own observation there would be uh, 
that kind of worry around, you know, why isn't my loved one being healed or, you know, why did my, why did my, why did my wife die after I had prayed for so long and so forth is, I mean, you want to be compassionate with this kind of circumstance, but you also want to try to lead people to, or I put it this way, lead people away from the understanding that healing is an outcome. It's not an outcome. It's a process. And I, you know, I've been in the classroom for the most part. I've accompanied one or two people, you know, to their, to their destiny, so to speak. And, you know, when, when the outcome is inevitable and you know someone is going to die, and, and there's nothing anymore that a healthcare provider can do. It doesn't mean that at that point we abandon our compassionate accompaniment to people who are dying. Quite the contrary. In fact, that's where even more compassion is, is called for. And, and then what I've been able to witness, both in the person who's dying and in their loved ones, if they're attentive, and if the minister of the gospel is attentive, you know, that there's healing that comes even in, you know, what looks like loss. And I, I, that's why I would, I, I do want us to widen our understanding from outcome to process. And that's why I think that if, if someone is interested in, you know, the, the, the charism of healing, and I do believe it's a charism. I mean, it was in St. Paul's Day. It is in our own, you know. But there are certain things we can do to kind of till the ground to prepare for this grace or charism of healing. And one of them is simply developing our capacity for empathy and sympathy. You enter into somebody's experience. You, you, know, you seek to understand them, so to speak, from the inside out. That's a very human act, of course. But it doesn't come naturally. I think you got to practice it. I think it, it requires um, you know, some some skills, some um, reiteration, you know, that kind of thing. But I think that eventually, then the grace of healing can operate through these kind of natural uh, capacities for empathy and sympathy. You know, I just, I love this imager you're, you're painting. One of my dear friends is an emergency room doctor, and she and I have been having a lot of discussions given our current situation yeah. with COVID-19. And um, I know she has felt way down at times of why can't I do more? I, I'm overwhelmed. And it feels like, and, and you know, it's really interesting hearing her say that and then reading these really moving reports of um, people caring for COVID patients in the hospital who are asking the question, showing compassion and working to help them FaceTime with their loved ones, that their loved ones can't be there, who really are kind of all in all with these people in isolation wards with COVID. And it feels like we are in this situation seeing the truth of some of what you're talking about, that people in the medical profession who have been trained to show compassion have just stepped up Absolutely to a stepped whole up. new level. There was something in the Dallas Morning News not uh, too long ago about um, – you know, somebody in the, the COVID ward, I think it was at um, Parkland Hospital, but who had arranged so that um, someone who was, you know, on a ventilator and not going to come off the ventilator before he or she died could actually hear their loved one's voices. And it was 
I mean, I think it was using FaceTime or one of those technologies that, again, would have been a miracle, you know, a generation yeah. ago and is now today's routine technology. But but deploying that technology in this uh, very, very compassionate way so that even uh, so that the dying person didn't feel abandoned. I do say I do think that one of the most kind of cruel things about a pandemic like this is the need for isolation, you know. Uh, and isolation can be the enemy of compassion, you know, because when you're isolated, you don't, you know, you don't always sense the compassion of people around you, um, and, and particularly your loved ones who feel helpless because they're on the other side of a barrier or a solid wall or the freeway or, you know, I mean, whatever it is, and that they can't reach their um, their mom or their aunt or their grandmother or whoever it is. and um, you know, just hold their hand and be with them in those final moments. Um, so these healthcare providers have, I know it's become kind of a cliche, you know, heroes work here and all of that, but I, they really have, as you say, stepped up. Yeah. And this image of them sort of being in the place of God, whether or not that, that's something they would name for right. themselves. And probably really- given the, the modesty of so many healthcare right. providers that I know, docs, nurses, nurse practitioners and the like, they would in fact probably reject this notion that they're playing God, mm-hmm. you know? But on the other hand, maybe the way to think of them is like the prophets, somebody who stands in that intermediary position, you know, someone who represents one party to another. I mean, we certainly saw that in those healthcare providers uh, who were using, you know, I think it's FaceTime to be able to communicate between family members outside and, you know, the, the dying patient inside. Uh, that's an intermediary. It's an intercessory kind of of action. And, you know, I'm going to go so far as to say that I think whenever we see successful mediation and intercession, there God is found, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Particularly when what's getting, you know, communicated through that mediating and intercessory uh, action is, in fact, the compassion of God. So one of the things that I find very interesting about your work, another thing I find very interesting about your work, is that you bring in this combination of compassion and lament. Yep. And one of the things, you know, we don't know how long this pandemic is going to go on. Uh, we know it'll be longer than we want. Um, but one of the things I feel like we are struggling with as a culture is what lament looks like. I mean, I think about that very powerful front page of the New York Times where they listed some of the names, these 100,000 100, people. 100,000, right, died. What do you think, looking at lament in the scripture, is a way that lament can be healing for us as a culture, as a church, in this situation? Well, you know, I would... I've been saying this for a long time, right? I think that Catholics, and I, I think this is probably true of the Anglican communion as well, tend to be very polite with God, you know? Oh, Episcopalians are much, much worse than Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, this is kind of, oh, you know, gracious God, you know, I am not worthy to come before you. I am but dust and ashes. I mean, granted, there is a part of that in the great tradition of both Judaism and Christianity. But when I read the laments, I am more impressed by um, the searing honesty of the psalmist to laments. And the psalmist is not fearful of even rebuking God. You know, where are you? In, in our tradition, there's a story of Teresa of Avila. You know, she's the founder of the uh, Discalced Carmelites along with Juan de la Cruz. And um, 
it may be legendary, but it, it says something about this woman's searing honesty. So she's going around from convent to convent, trying to get these nuns to do things like pray again, right? You know, because it becomes sort of a a place of retirement for noble ladies to be able to, you know, live away from the hustle and bustle of the world, but still have their friends come in and bring in the latest gossip from court or whatever else. So she's deciding she wants to, um, you know, like really help them to live out their vocation as nuns who pray for the mission of the church and so forth. And she's having a lot of difficulty. And at least this episode begins that she's in the back of an ox cart and it's, you know, your classic dark and stormy night and the ox cart hits a rut and Teresa gets bounced out of the back of the, uh, the ox cart and lands in a ditch face first in the mud. And she cries out in lament. Oh, Lord, I thought I was your friend. (laughs) Now, you know, Teresa was a mystic, and it means that not only can she speak to God, but she can hear God. We all can speak to God. Few of us can hear God, right? She can hear God. So she hears God say to her, well, Teresa, you are my friend. And she says in return, well, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. (laughs) You know, again, you know, somebody who's a you know historian of Carmelite spirituality might, in fact, dispute the historical verifiability of that particular legend, but it speaks to me about what holiness is. You know that holiness is first and foremost honesty. It's honesty with myself. I mean, and and maybe we preserve that in our understanding of what holiness is, but it's also holiness. Uh, holiness is also you know honesty with God. And not being fearful of expressing, you know, my frustration, my disappointment, my fear, my worry, um, my anxiety, all the rest of it. And as I say, most of us tend to lie to God in our prayer. I mean, we really do. You know, we we just sort of, you know, put on this kind of mask of humility and then make some sort of timid proposition when, um, you know, at least our great forebears in the faith, I think particularly these psalmists, were anything but timid. I like that spirituality of lament. And so, you know, what I've certainly tried to do is to help people to recover that kind of honesty and that kind of, um, you know, um, willingness to bear one's soul before God. Well, and like you said, that's an important part of healing. And if we can't figure out how to do that individually and as a culture. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe one of the obstacles in American culture is that we are so um, driven by both success itself or even the appearance of success, you know, and uh, to admit vulnerability, to admit failure, to admit anxiety or fear goes against the cultural grain. Um, I've lived in other cultures, you know, um, and I think in some of those other places, uh, there's less, there's less of an aptitude for, um, you know, self-disguise. Um, and maybe it's because they're older cultures. Uh, maybe it's because, you know, they've seen, they've got a complicated history, you know, which you know, any honest reading of their own complicated history shows the fail. I, I think of Germany where I grew up, you know, I mean, the, the, the immediate tragedy of German history in the post-war period was to deal with the paradox of the Third Reich. I mean, how could a culture of people allow this to happen? Well, they did. And we have to deal with that, you know. Um, 
but on the other hand, um, America is a younger culture. Um, I think maybe only now we're beginning to deal with the, um, the tragic side of our own history. Uh, and I think some of that's really apparent, both in the, um, you know, the, the kind of issues around COVID-19, that peoples of color and poor people are suffering from this pandemic in ways that, you know, wealthy and comfortable uh, people are not, you know. So that, that, that COVID-19 has exposed, so to speak, the, the tragic divide in this country. Um, and I think the other factor where we're seeing, you know, the, the consequences of, uh, you know, America, the American experiment being uh, exposed, so to speak, is in the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, where it seems also clear that even the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was not enough to compensate for the original sin that, that, that is American, that is the enslavement, enslavement of African peoples and their descendants. Well, I mean, I I think and learning how to lament, learning how to tell the truth, like you said, is one of the things we have to do now as a culture to learn how, you know, God willing, at some point we can start to heal. Well, we are at time. Um, thank you so much, Father. I feel like I've learned a ton from listening to you, and I look forward to reading um, your further research without reading any of the Greek footnotes. Um, in a, <laughs> oh, I'm, an I'm an ethicist. In, we live and die for footnotes. <laughs> I know y'all do. That's why I do moral theology. But it, when this comes out, so thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.